You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning and Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, If you're looking around and wondering where someone might be, a really good chance they migrated to the 930 service, all right? And that's okay. This is the first Sunday that uh, we are on this schedule. Uh, Lord willing, it's going to work for us as we move to our new facility and uh, our hope was that it would kind of even out the two services a little bit, and that's, that's kind of happened. Today's not uh, probably a good day to assess that because I know we have a lot of people traveling, uh, but I'm also aware that we have some folks here today that might not normally be, and so if you're a guest today, maybe visiting with a family member, uh, thank you for choosing to worship with us. We're glad that you're here and hope that you enjoy a great time with family and friends. I want to real quickly say thank you to those who have led us so well during this Advent season. We had uh, eight different families or individuals who uh, participated in the service uh, through uh, our Advent uh, emphasis. And uh, I know that uh, some of you look and you think it would strike fear in my heart uh, to have my kids go up on on stage um, and uh, behave themselves at least marginally well. Uh, And they all did great. Uh, I had no doubt that uh, Charlie and Ella Drew would do great up here. A little concerned about Allie, however, uh, but she did well too. And so thank you, Allie. Uh, we, I really do appreciate those of you who have led us so well during this time. Uh, and we are, are nearing the, the finish line on our new building. I know I've been, feel like I've been saying that for a year, uh, but uh, it's true. Uh, we are just, Lord willing, uh, weeks away from making the move over to Colin McKinney Parkway and... Uh, It's going to be an exciting time, but there are a lot of uh, just final things to be done, details, uh, just all of that. And so be listening for opportunities. We may need your help with a few things. Uh, We're not moving a lot of furniture over to the new building from uh, this campus, uh, but some things will go over there. The black chairs that most of you are sitting in this morning uh, will go over there and be used in classrooms for community groups and that kind of thing. Uh, But uh, we just have so much... Uh, to look forward to. Well, we're in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to join me there, Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. Uh, The text will be up on the screen this morning, but I will say, if you would like to have a copy of God's Word, maybe don't have one of your own, uh, we would love to give you one, and uh, it would be our pleasure to do that. So if you just check with one of us after the service, come see me, and I'll make sure that you get Uh, your own copy of God's Word. But this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, a season of preparation, a season of anticipation, uh, a season of waiting. Uh, And we want to make certain that these holidays uh, for us are truly holy days. As we look to Jesus, that's what Advent is all about. As we look to the Christ of Christmas. Uh, I was wondering as I was preparing for this morning's message, what would it be like if an alien came to Earth uh, from another planet uh, and, and witnessed what was transpiring during this season. Uh, what would they come to understand about this thing we call Christmas? Uh, would they just see the commercialization and all the shopping and, and all of the, the, sometimes we call the trappings of Christmas? Uh, not that they're wrong in and of themselves, but what would they come to understand is really the reason for this season, for uh, what is the emphasis of this whole time? Would they come to understand that it is about a long-awaited Savior. Understand, beginning with the book of Genesis and really running through the the book of Malachi, through the entire Old Testament, God unfolds for us the drama of redemption and the true essence of Christmas. And it paints for us, almost stroke by stroke, this portrait of God's Messiah. 
uh, the, the, the Christ of Christmas. As we've been seeing here in Isaiah chapter 9, the king with four names or four titles. And so I just did a quick snapshot of what some of those look like. And I want to give those to you real quickly. Genesis 3, we find that he is the seed of woman. And what's called the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. In Genesis chapter 12, he is the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 49, he is of the tribe of Judah. In Numbers 24, he is the star come out of Jacob. In Deuteronomy 18, he is the prophet greater than Moses. In 2 Samuel 7, he is the son of David who will reign forever. In Psalm 2, he is the Lord's anointed. Then in Psalm 22, he is the righteous sufferer. In Psalm 110, he is the king priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Isaiah 7, he is the suffering. He is the, the virgin conceived, uh, virgin born Emmanuel. Then in Isaiah fifty three, he is the suffering servant of the Lord. In Daniel chapter seven, he is the coming son of man. And in uh, Micah chapter five verse two, he is the baby born in Bethlehem. All of those, uh, all of those prophecies, all of those texts pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, as we saw last week here in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, uh, he is the greater Gideon uh, who is to come. He is the king with four names. Now, I realize many of you have not been here for this entire series, so I thought I would kind of go back and do a recap of what we've unpacked so far in Isaiah uh, chapter 9. Uh, the year was approximately 725 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel, this is during the time of the divided kingdom, uh, was facing an ominous and perilous situation from the north as an evil and aggressive Assyrian empire was growing and expanding. The Assyrians were poised and ready to attack what really was a morally bankrupt and a militarily weak Israel. Uh, and in, in 722 B.C., if you know history, you know that Israel would, in fact, be sacked, overrun, crushed in humiliating defeat, loved ones brutally killed, families broken up and destroyed, the land devastated, economic uh, havoc would be rampant. The once proud nation would be brought to its knees in shame and in humiliation and judgment. So with that as the backdrop, what we also find in the midst of all that chaos in the midst of that despair and hopelessness, they receive a word from God, a word from heaven. It helps us better understand some of the prophecies that we see here in the Old Testament. So what we've seen so far is the gloom of verse number one that we're going to read in just a moment would turn to the rejoicing of verse number three. The distress of verse one would turn to the joy of verse three. The oppression of verse one would turn to the broken yoke of verse three. The darkness, as we've seen, would turn to light. Shadow of death would be overcome in verse six. We talked about this some before, but all of the verbs in this text are in what is called the prophetic perfect tense. We would say it this way in our, in our modern day vernacular, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. As E.J. Young paraphrases it, there is great rejoicing among God's people because God has broken the yoke of burden and oppression and the burden and oppression are removed because the weapons and garments of the warrior are destroyed and the basic reason for these blessings is that a child is born. 
And we could study human history. We could study the, the history of wars and conflict and all those things. And it would take a long time to do that. And, and we could identify different things that happened, uh, that transpired, that brought some of these conflicts to an end, to a resolution, an armistice, or whatever the case may be. In this particular case, what Isaiah is prophesying is what will bring this to a conclusion is the birth of a baby, the birth of a child. 700 years before the wise men gave and the angels sang and the shepherds came, Isaiah explains what Christmas is all about in a text that has been called the cornerstone and the centerpiece of prophetic prophecy. It's amazing. As I was praying over and thinking through what what text I should preach, what what maybe series we should do during this Advent season, I discovered that over 30-some years of pastoral ministry, I'd never done an entire series through Isaiah chapter 9, these first seven verses. I'd preached the text, I had preached parts of the text, but I'd never really done it in quite this way, and I hope that it's been as enriching for you as it has for me. What is it that the Lord shows Isaiah here that we also need to see concerning this king with four names? So let's look at the text once again today. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So to recap, I want to revisit what we've looked at so far in our text here. The king is marvelous in how he came. Marvelous in how he came. When we consider the flow of Isaiah's prophecy here, we see that the virgin-born Emmanuel of Isaiah 7, 14 is the king with four names here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 and is the rod from the stem of Jesse that you see in chapter 11, verse 1. He is God's Messiah. He is the promised deliverer of Old Testament prophecy. Now, he came in earthly humanity. In humility, the text here says, for a child is born to us. Child occurs there for for weight, for emphasis. And again, we see the prophetic perfect used. It's as good as done. So in other words, Isaiah is actually looking to a new day, to a wonderful day, a day of unparalleled joy and blessing when a -a one-of-a-kind child, a king with four names, is born for us. Now, it's not lost on us that, that children are born every day. There's hardly a time that I'm in a hospital visiting someone that you don't hear the chimes over the intercom indicating that a baby has just been born in that facility, right? 
So it's not that uncommon to think of a child being born. This child is unlike any other child that's ever been born. A child is born. Speaks of his earthly beginning. Speaks of the baby of Bethlehem. Unto us, for us, for our good, a child is born. And the writer of Hebrews affirms this when he says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Christmas is God come in the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. God incarnate. God with us. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4 and says, But when the fullness of time had come, what? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. E.Y. Mullen says, Christ's spotless humanity as a finite drop of dew reflects the glory of sovereign holiness and love taking the initiative in saving man. Don't lose sight of the significance of Christmas, that God came in the flesh. God came in human form. I'm reminded of uh, a number of years ago in our church in East Texas where we were for 11 years. Uh, One year, we had kind of a traditional Christmas production, you might say. There was music, there was some drama involved, and we had a guy in the church who played the part of Joseph, and uh, in this particular part of the production, he was singing a lullaby to what was to be the baby Jesus, and we used an actual baby in this production. We had a newborn baby there in the church, and so... Uh, The parents uh, joyfully uh, allowed us to to use their baby as the baby Jesus. Uh, And so this guy sang this uh, sweet little lullaby to Jesus, and and then he exited the stage as he was supposed to, and thinking that his microphone had been turned off, he said this, Phew! Baby Jesus needs a diaper change. (laughs) And everybody heard it. (laughs) To the horror of the sound guy, right? I mean... And, and later to the horror of the guy who said that. And, and we all laughed and had a great time with it. And we still uh, remember that to this day. But do you realize how much truth was in that? <laughs> the significance of that statement? That the baby Jesus had a dirty diaper? That the baby Jesus had to be burped and held? <laughs> Christ is God in the flesh. He came in earthly humanity. But he also came in heavenly deity. <laughs> it says... A son is given to us. It it speaks of his eternal being. It speaks of the glory of God. It tells us of God's gift. So God's Christmas gift came in the person of deity wrapped in the package of humanity. John Phillips says it beautifully. He says, the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. It's miraculous. R.G. Lee said this, Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father, but with an earthly mother. He had, an heavenly mo- he had no heavenly mother, but a heavenly father. He was older than his mother, and yet as old as his father. Now let that blow your mind for a moment. B.B. Warfield nails it with succinct clarity. He says, no two natures, no incarnation. No incarnation, no Christianity in any distinctive way. So don't you think for a moment that the celebration of Christmas is just something that we Christians add to our calendar for sentimental reasons. It is critical to what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ and believers in his word. It's critical. Not only is it marvelous in how he came, but I want you to notice the king is majestic in who he is. 
with more than 250 names and titles of our Lord scattered from Genesis to Revelation, Isaiah brings together here four of those names in a tight, concise package that appears nowhere else in Scripture. In fact, more, more names of Messiah are found together here than anywhere else in the Bible. And together, what they do is they encapsulate the totality of the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he does. Now, I happen to know, particularly here in the South, um, we, we do nicknames, right? I think even more so than our friends north of the Mason-Dixon line. I spent seven years up that way, and uh, they, they found it odd that we called our brothers Bubba, and we called our grandparents Mama and Papa and Peepaw, and all, you know, they were just like, they thought that was just the funniest thing ever. And, and sometimes you're given a nickname based upon a, a, a character trait or a, a physical trait, there was a time when we called our oldest son Matt Biggin, you know, and my sister still, I think, calls him Biggin because he was the Biggin, right? I mean, it just made sense. And so, uh, but I, I want you to understand here, of these 250-some names, they all carry great weight and meaning, telling us something of the very character and nature of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he does. Even here in Isaiah's uh, prophecy, wonderful in Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful emphasizes his deity. Counselor emphasizes his humanity. Mighty emphasizes his uh, humanity. God, Mighty God emphasizes his deity. Everlasting emphasizes his deity. Father emphasizes his humanity. Peace emphasizes his humanity. Uh, Prince rep- uh, emphasizes his humanity. Peace emphasizes his deity. And so coupled with this child born and this son given, the result is nothing less than the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And we should understand that names or titles express character and activity, who a person is and what a person does. Jesus will show himself to be with absolute perfection these names that describe him. So we've already looked at a couple of them. We've looked at Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, we're talking about much more than finding an available baby name, right? The the prophet Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would not only have a name but four. And these names are not really names like John and Susie. They're royal titles. We would call them uh, throne names. And so these titles describe aspects of the character and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, matchless in his wisdom, who understands everything that we go through. He shall be called, as we looked at last week, the Mighty God, El Givor, who is matchless in his power toward us and in us and through us. And today... We're going to see that he shall be called Everlasting Father. Lord willing, tonight in our Christmas Eve service, we'll look at the Prince of Peace. First thing I think we need to clear up this morning is our instinct uh, to not associate Jesus with the term Father. So from the view of the Trinity, and I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity to you this morning, uh, even if I had all the time in the world, I'm not sure I could explain it to you. But Jesus' title is not the Father, but the Son. God the Son. Okay, so the Son is not the Father. Neither is the Father the Son. Though they are one God, essentially and eternally. 
Understand this, Isaiah 9-6 has no bearing upon the position and titles of the three persons of the Trinity with regard to each other. That's not what this text uh, is doing here, accomplishing. It doesn't indicate uh, the relation of deity to itself, but the relation of Jesus, the prophesied uh, Messiah, the relation of Jesus to us. He is, in other words, forever father-like in his character and action toward his spiritual children. Now, some of you have or had a great dad, and your memories of him are cherished. For others, that's maybe not your story. For some of us, the the greatest pain in our life has come from a relationship with our father for a variety of reasons. So the thought of Jesus as an everlasting father or being father-like to his children may be difficult for you to grasp. I understand that. In fact, recently I was reading an article, I think it was in the Gospel Coalition, written by a young man that had this very struggle. And here's what he said. He said, I was 25 years old before I could say the word father while praying. Because of the kind of relationship or the lack thereof that I had with my dad. It didn't seem to roll off my tongue the way that it did for many of my Christian friends. How could I come to God without fear when I had been scared to go home when dad was there? How could I understand God's love and faithfulness when dad left town because he loved someone or something more than me? How can God be a mighty fortress of protection when my dad hit instead of hugged? Some of us can relate to that struggle. Uh, In fact, I had a couple people from the early service come to me and express that very thing. Uh, You can relate to that. So whether the term father conjures up a positive or a negative uh, emotion or image for you, today my prayer is that you would encounter a father in God, personified in Jesus Christ, that speaks to your deepest longings. An everlasting father that you can trust to keep his promises. Today I want us to look at really three promises of Jesus as our everlasting father. Promise number one, unconditional love and acceptance. Some of us had dads like this. No matter how much we've messed up, they've always loved us, encouraged us. And not stingy with their words. Never cease to tell you uh, what you mean to them. Some of us uh, had dads uh, that not only gave us love when we achieved their standards. When we met the mark, so to speak. And so uh, maybe you rarely, if ever, heard the words, I'm proud of you or I love you or anything like that. Some people go through much of their adult life with this open wound. Some are still looking for those words to, to fill the hole, the, the father wound. It can drive careers, it can drive ambitions, it can drive how they relate to those close to them, and understandably, they carry this perspective, uh, perspective of themselves into their relationship with God. Whatever you do, you have this nagging, unspoken doubt, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And you constantly compare yourself with others around you. And you say, well, if I were more like him or if I was as gifted as her, then maybe God would accept me. This is not the Jesus that we encounter in Scripture. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse number 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, what you have to realize is that those words were written in this context of, of, of the three years that Jesus had just spent with his disciples, guys who routinely messed up and doubted, 
They were not the straight-A students of their day or the football stars or first chair in the band. They were awesome at not meeting expectations. Even worse, they were about to abandon Jesus. One denied even knowing him three times and one betrayed him. And Jesus knew all of that and he still loved them to the end. And his love was not only with just words but actions because we find in Scripture that he washed their feet an intimate act of devotion and service. This is how Jesus feels about you. Not because you have met the standards or the expectations, but please hear this today, but because you're his. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are his. And it's not based upon anything you've done or anything you could ever do. It's because of the amazing grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christmas. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I wonder this morning, are you convinced? Have you taken that into your heart by faith? Some of you perhaps are trapped in the lie of Satan that says, this is true for others, but it can't be possibly true for me. Certainly that couldn't include me. I'm too much of a mess up. Well, check this out. So am I. Join the club of sinners. Population, everyone. Tim Keller, one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes. I've told you this before. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. Based upon the love of Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christmas. And because Jesus loved us so much, he stood in our place in the way of judgment and took it for us on the cross. Promise number two. Loving discipline for our good. We all instinctively know that properly applied discipline is critical in raising well-adjusted children. But not all of us had fathers that disciplined us properly, and that brings us back, again, back to painful memories sometimes. Maybe, maybe you had a ticking time bomb of a dad. It's the kind of dad where you just never knew exactly what to expect, what you were going to get. If you had a bad day at work, then the smallest thing could set him off. Maybe he felt like you were constantly walking on eggshells. If he didn't get exactly what he wanted, whether it was immediate obedience or dinner on the table at exactly the right time or whatever, he might fly off the handle. And, and maybe alcohol or drugs uh, magnified those outbursts. And of course, this was your experience, then it affects how you see your Heavenly Father. You have a hard time maybe trusting Him, leaving things in His hands. You, you seem to, like, as it were, walk on spiritual eggshells. So, so, so you, maybe you try to appease Him or to avoid Him. How can you trust that he, He's really going to take care of you? What if He happens to be in a bad mood? Just as with your, heavenly, uh, your earthly dad, you're always trying to figure out how, how you can somehow contain him, as it were, to stay on his good side. 
something goes wrong in your life, you wonder, what did I do now? This is not the character of Jesus. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus isn't capricious. He's not cruel. He's steady and always stands ready to give us grace at the first sign of repentance. But because he is a good father, he does discipline in love for our good. In Romans chapter 12, or Hebrews chapter 12, rather, we, we, we find these words. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as, as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline... Then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What is Scripture telling us? It's telling us that discipline is a sign that we are His children. And because He is a loving Father who wants to see our ultimate good for His glory, He disciplines. And He will allow us to feel the pain of our sinful choices. That that, that may be through withholding blessing. It could be through uh, taking something away from us that has become an idol. It could be through a sense of distance. It could be allowing the natural principle, the biblical principle of sowing and reaping come into our lives. It's not because he hates you. He's willing so that ultimately good would come out of it. Training for righteousness and peace. He's shaping us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I want you to notice promise number three. That is to hold us fast forever. Unfailing love and security. He's not an absentee dad. He won't run out. He's present forever. Some of us had dads that were at every game, every recital, home for dinner most nights, and even now you know that he's always there for you. But that's also not the case for many. In fact, Bo Jackson, uh, who some would argue is the greatest athlete to ever live, a professional in both football and baseball, something that very few people can say. He said this, my father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Can you imagine? Here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes of the world, and I'm sitting in the locker room envying every one of my teammates whose dad would come in and talk and have a drink with them after the game. I never experienced that. And here's what happens. Kids often interpret the absence of their dad as a personal rejection. They think they weren't important enough. They weren't good enough. Counselors tell us often that this manifests itself in sort of a a background soundtrack soundtrack of sadness that they live with and they don't quite understand. A fear of being alone or a nagging suspicion that their lives, uh, that, that, that anything good that comes into their life will eventually go away. And this can carry over into their understanding of Jesus. You fear he might leave you, might change his mind about you, he might find something better, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
You know the number one promise that is repeated more than any other in Scripture, in some form or another, is I am with you. I'll not leave you, abandon you, forsake you. Listen to what Jesus said to all those who belong to him. We looked at it just a few weeks ago in our study of John's gospel. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's another reality that we need to bear in mind. Even the best dads die. That's not easy to say. Not easy to think about. It won't be around forever. When they die, they can leave this big gaping hole in our heart that you don't quite know how to fill. That's why I love that word that Isaiah adds. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father. You know the last image of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22? Emmanuel, God with us forever, never disappoints, never forsakes, never leaves, never dies. He's the Father your heart has always craved. Remember that young man from the article? said he struggled to pray to God as his father? Well, the more he saw Jesus in Scripture, the more it began to change his view. And here's what he went on to say in that article. He said, an earthly dad is supposed to be like training wheels teaching you about the Heavenly Father. And I had some really bad training wheels. They were terrible. But now that I know the real father, that was the point the whole time, which gives me the ability to cope with all the ways that my earthly father may have failed me. And us earthly fathers, we all fail. We all fail. I've failed. So I wonder today, does your heart long to be someone special to someone else, to matter? For someone to be thinking about you and to say the words, I love you and I'm proud of you? Do you want to be able to trust a father's correction who has your best interest in mind? Do you desire the experience of an unfading love? I'm here to tell you, his name is Jesus. He's the Christ of Christmas. And Isaiah tells us he's everlasting Father. The ultimate proof that he can fulfill these promises is the cross and the resurrection. He demonstrates his love by dying for us in our place like the ultimate sacrificial Father. But he fulfills his promise to be a Father to us forever in his resurrection. Yes, we celebrate his birth in this season. But as followers of Jesus Christ, with a clear understanding of Scripture, it should be with this knowledge. He came and was born so that he could live among us a perfect, sinless life that ultimately led to a cross, a cruel Roman cross, where he laid down his life for you and me. He died only to rise again, conquering death, so that we could experience eternal life. So I wonder, how do you receive the promises of the everlasting Father? By becoming one of His children. And how do we do that? Well, according to John 1, it says, Yet to all who did receive Him, 
To those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So it comes back to that question that we've been asking all along these last few weeks. You may be here today and you may know that He is wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is an everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. But the bigger question is, is he your wonderful counselor? Is he your mighty God? Is he your everlasting father? And is he your prince of peace? If you would join me in a moment of prayer this morning, with our heads bowed and and our eyes closed, I want to thank you for your kind attention today. As we conclude today's service, I, I... I'm going to just ask that you maybe wrestle with that question for a moment. Do I know Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christmas, as more than just a baby in a manger, as, uh, as the, the reason for a sentimental season? Do you personally know why he came and that he came for you? He died a death that he didn't deserve so that you and I could live a life that we don't deserve. Is he your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, your prince of peace? What a shame it would be go through this entire season of celebration enjoy the good food the time with family and friends all the things that are a part of this wonderful season that we celebrate and yet you personally not really know the Christ of Christmas it's what's most important So, Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clear prophecies of old that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell us of his very character and nature. The work that he came to fulfill. So God, we thank you that there was an incarnation. We thank you that God came in the flesh and lived that perfect, sinless life that we can't live, died in our place so that we could live forever. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.